With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, start playing. You got that wired for sound? What are you doing here? I'm having a little conversation. You're listening to a radio station. Every wire, every airway. Bradley. Bradley. Lord, I just want to talk some more. No, Brad's a machine. Oh, he really means it, Brad. You're on the air. Call 617-254-1030 to join in. Jay talking. I want to talk to him, tell him the way things are. On WBZ. WBZ News Radio 1030. You're Jay talking live, midnight to five. Mark Lavallo is in. I'm Bradley Jay. And I know you like history. I love it too. I mean, we are live here in in Boston, and so it's great to make sure that we immerse ourselves in the culture of Boston, both historically and maybe uh, what's up in the future, and we'll be able to do both of those things tonight. Alexander Train is here, Assistant Director of Planning for the City of Chelsea. How do you do? Good evening. I can barely see you over this monitor. There we go. Monitor's down. So thanks for coming in. You're close by. You live in Medford. Right down the street, yeah. Did you walk? Uh, No. You could have. It's kind of chilly. Practically, though. Practically, though. Actually, I did walk from Brookline from Coolidge Corner to Haymarket. Okay, that's that's you know, tonight. So you just gotta dress up yeah. nicely. Yeah. So I'm interested in in uh, the Tobin Bridge. I'm I'm from New Hampshire, so every time I go home, go over the Tobin Bridge. You know, coming to Boston for the first times, you know, you come through Saugus and you come down, and then there's that beautiful view of Boston as you come over the bridge, and you see the the evolution of it. You see the painting over and over again. I used to have a friend that lived. Underneath it, and would get, I guess it got sand all over everything when they painted it down below. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I've always been interested about it, and you're here to talk a little bit about the bridge and its history. So what was there before there was the Tobin Bridge? So it really goes back to early 1900s, 1903. There used to be just sort of a, a typical quintessential drawbridge. Um, Chelsea used to actually have a ferry terminal directly across from Charlestown, so they erected this drawbridge to allow, you know, as the onset sort of of the automobile Model T was rolling off the assembly line and more and more people were buying cars and they had to get over sort of the Mystic River and Chelsea Creek into Boston. So they installed sort of a two-lane drawbridge that would allow it to go up and down for ship traffic. So um, there would have been horses on there too, right? Would have been uh, horses, there would have been carriages, there would have been, you know, old Model Ts, you know. And what was... What was done in Chelsea at the time? Was it uh, a brick build? Uh, no, Medford was the bricks, I guess. Yeah. What was going on in Chelsea at the time? So Chelsea, as far as industry or services or anything? Yeah, Chelsea is a deeply inveterate history rooted in uh, you know maritime industry. So Chelsea Naval Hospital, uh, where Admirals Hill is today, was currently uh, or used to be the sort of primary operating center in New England for for the. Navy. Um, beyond that, shipbuilding really took root in the uh, you know late 1800s and uh, early 1900s. That transitioned slowly from what you would 
traditionally think of the shipbuilding and lumber into more industrialized uh, economic activity. So we would have uh, adhesive companies moving there towards the end of the 19th century. We would have other maritime dependent uh, uses in industry that would support shipping, repair facilities, um, commodity import-export operations. And that sort of segued into more and more sort of toxic and uh, you know nuisance types of industries ranging from tanneries to chemical and uh, petroleum production facilities and, you know, all in between. So at some point, actually it wasn't really a point, it was a gradual thing, they decided, well, we really need a real bridge, and it's a long, drawn-out process of getting the Tobin Bridge built. Right? It was, it was, yeah. Um, it was hard to reach consensus at first, so we had this onset of auto traffic, and then you had the evolution of the Chelsea and East Boston waterfront, which really induced an increase in shipping traffic, so you had that dichotomy. Um, so back sort of 1903, they built the first drawbridge, you know, within 10 years, it was already inadequate. And I don't know if anyone was really well equipped at that time to think and envisage what should be going there, but they were ended up replacing the, the drawbridge with another type of drawbridge. And then it wasn't until 1933 when they started considering a true permanent replacement. And that was when sort of the first, uh, first iteration of the Tobin, or at that time, the, the Mystic River Bridge, was first conceived. Um, the state legislature convened a uh, state transportation committee to assess and evaluate the feasibility of a permanent structure. Um, and they came up with a permutation, they came up with a design. That ended up segueing into another effort in the uh, early 40s, which yielded sort of the actual design and engineering effort of the uh, Tobin Bridge. So initially, as you mentioned, Mystic River Bridge, mm -hmm. and they decided to name it after Maurice Tobin, who was mayor, governor, secretary of labor, and his real claim to fame was he was really for the workers, big time. Very right? illustrious working yeah. class gentleman, yeah, yeah. And so when did construction begin? How long did it take? Were there any problems? Tell me all about it. Yeah, so uh, construction began in earnest in uh, 1947, and it was actually a pretty expeditious construction program, especially by today's standards. Um, they completed it and opened it by 1950. Um, you know, to our knowledge and sort of in history, there weren't any real issues, problematically speaking. Uh, but it was definitely a much more sort of rapid, um, you know, era of construction. Right? There weren't labor standards like there were today. There weren't sort of the health and safety um, regulations that we abide by to protect workers, protect sort of surrounding residents' uh, health and safety. So they really uh, they hit the ground running with it. Well. And can you give me some specs on the bridge? Length, width, height, yeah, all that, and, so, um, and how maybe it compares to other bridges in, in the world or the country? Yeah, so it's uh, it's a little bit taller than 350 feet above water. Um, the span from sort of land side to land side is almost two miles long in some areas. Um, the longest span of the, uh, the, the decks is about 800 feet long. Um, if you ride across it, it's sort of comprised, it's a cantilever truss bridge, which is sort of, um, supported by stanchions that hold the uh, structure up and then are driven into the water and then the ground below the water. And those are supported with metal uh, sort of suspension, uh, a metal suspension system. So um, comparable bridges, the Tappan Zee Bridge, the uh, San Francisco to Oakland Bridge. Um, a lot of the bridges that went over large bodies of water, whether it be rivers, uh, harbors, or um, ports back in the uh, you know early 20th century were, were designed in this vein. 350 feet high. And I'm, I'm asking this question, you may or may not be able to address it, and I'm asking it seriously, not flippantly. 
at all, but how much of an issue is people jumping off? I, it's it's a thing, right? You need to actually have structures to keep people from jumping off. It it was a uh, it was a really tragic phenomenon, right? Um, right now, well, so about two years ago, the so the Massachusetts Department of Transportation owns, operates, and maintains the bridge currently. Prior to that, uh, the Massachusetts Port Authority owned it, and this was an endemic issue with both agencies having to grapple with the uh, sort of alarming rate of suicides off the bridge. But they did install uh, sort of prevention fencing, which is impossible to scale for most people to to reduce the number of people uh, jumping off. But there was, uh, you know, there was a window in time where that happened somewhat regularly. Our fire and police department would respond to calls um, both in the water and on the land side. Uh, from sort of uh, instances like that. So it was it was an issue, yeah. Continuing on the bridge. First, I love the that 50s color. What do you call that color? The the 50s green, right? Yeah, I love yeah. that. Very earthy, very, uh, very pronounced. Very Cold War. Very it's, Cold War. It's kind of yeah. Cold War. You know, it harkens back to a lot of, uh, you know, James Bond films, if you will. You see all the military facilities covered in green. So did we talk about how long it takes to paint it and how often they have to paint the Tobin Bridge? So I'm not honestly sure how long it takes them to Seems paint Seems like they're it, always but doing it. it. You know, since I uh, was young enough to recall, it, it seems like they've been painting it uh, regularly. And I do know they, they take a very serious and uh, stringent uh, maintenance program that they employ to, to, to care for the bridge. So it obviously, given the age, given the... Uh, materials, given the corrosion that occurs because of the exposure to uh, the sort of salt in the air and the elements, they, they do need to maintain it fairly regularly. Is there a full-time crew of people whose you know, job is to administrate and oversee the bridge and paint it? Is it a self-contained thing, or do they hire outside people each time? So they have an operations staff, uh, the Mass Department of Transportation, actually located in Chelsea at the end of Broadway, right underneath the bridge, actually. Uh, a lot of the maintenance, such as painting, such as steel repairs, they do contract out to a uh, private contractor, yes. So everybody that drives over notices, gee whiz, this is kind of rusty, um, and it's really old. Everyone must kind of wonder, I wonder if it's really safe or how long it's going to be safe. Yeah. Uh, how do they deal with that rust? Do they just bondo it? Do they paint over it? Do they actually replace it? How's it work? Sure. So uh, actually, very topical question. Right now, the Mass Department of Transportation is undertaking a comprehensive rehabilitation of uh, the bridge. So they're replacing the uh, lower deck in its entirety. So it's all the steel is being replaced, concrete, roadway bed, uh, surfacing, pavement marking, signage, that sort of thing. The on and off ramp, similarly, the steel structures and substructures are all being replaced. Uh, it's a three-year-long project that the uh, Department of Transportation's uh, embarking on, and they're about a year into it right now. So, yeah, every so often they do have to do a comprehensive overhaul of it. Anything planned that is that makes it different that will make the experience of going across it any different? The, the most recent thing I can remember is the removal of toll booths. Yes, that was a big deal. Yeah. Any anything else? Re rerouting or resurfacing or anything sure. like that? Sure. So, um, like I mentioned, that project uh, that they're doing to overhaul uh, the upper and lower decks that's going to be occurring until I believe 2020 is what the uh, state conveys to us. Uh, concurrent with that, they're going to begin rehabilitating the Chelsea Route One viaduct. So, as you're descending from the bridge and uh, outbound, uh, north inbound. 
outbound. Outbound, okay. Uh, there's an elevated stretch of Route 1 that bisects Chelsea between 4th Street and Carter Street. That uh, elevated structure is being completely rehabilitated. New substructure, new drainage infrastructure, new roadway bed surfacing, signage, uh, the whole nine yards essentially. And that's beginning this year and it'll be another three-year project. Uh, they're also building out uh, some infrastructure underneath for the city, for some surrounding abutters, some parking areas, uh, enhanced lighting, uh, to really key in on some of the architectural details of the bridge. Okay, any plans for the real estate down below to mm. uh, uh, generate more tax revenue, generate housing, anything at all? So the city has a multifaceted plan for the real estate down below and the real estate parallel to the the Viaduct Is that city real bridge. estate down there? Um, there are three parcels of land directly underneath the Tobin Bridge between the water and then you go about, uh, you know, 1,000 feet up. We recently actually obtained uh, state funding and spent about a million dollars remediating the land. There was a lot of lead contamination. Uh -huh. And we built a uh, beautiful passive uh, park with an exercise area um, and a beautiful sort of landscaped uh, terrain. Uh, additionally, we're building a dog park under there right now. So Yay. we're really... like. Off-leash dog Off park? Off-leash dog park, yeah. Sweet. We're really envisioning that as a, uh, a public area. Um, as you sort of uh, move and traverse underneath Route 1 going through Chelsea, a lot of it, almost all of it's still owned by Mass Department of Transportation. Some of it they lease to some of the surrounding business entities as a parking area. Uh, they actually lease some of it to the city. So um, as part of the mitigation that's factored into this rehabilitation project, yeah. the city will be provided with some new parking areas. Um, moreover, we're also proposing a uh, corridor enhancement program that we call it, where we're going to be able to uh, grant or lend money at a very low interest rate to some of the surrounding housing uh, complexes and residential dwellings to, you know, uh, add insulated windows, begin repairing some of the uh, landscaped areas behind the house in between the house and Route 1 to really spruce it up and provide those residents with a uh, increased quality of life because they, again, do have to live right up against a highway. That's cool. So is it fishing underneath the bridge in, in your passive park area? Is, is it close enough to the water to fish? No fishing. The uh, Chelsea Yacht Club's directly across the way from it, so they have uh, you know slips for boats and whatnot and docks. But if a dude just wants to fish? Dude just wants to fish, they have to go uh, elsewhere in the Chelsea Creek. But one caveat, the uh, Department of Public Health just released a uh, – uh, public warning advising against consuming fish caught in the Mystic River in Chelsea Creek due to the uh, sort of high presence of uh, certain contaminants and chemicals right. in the fish. So I would discourage, if you're going to fish, catch, and release, I would highly discourage eating any of them. All right, thanks. Well, that's, that'll save me a trip, I guess. But the dog park sounds great. What's a passive park? You mentioned the word so passive. So a passive park is a, uh, so you think of a traditional park or playground. It has playground equipment. It has um, some socialization areas. Passive parks more so, you know, benches, architectural lighting, um, enhanced landscaped areas. I love We're also going to be incorporating some public art installations. Good. Um, just a place to go and quietly spend time in some so like serenity. Boston Common is a passive park, right? Yes, yes. Except for the merry-go-round. The merry-go-round of the ice the skating rink. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, art installations, installation art you're going to do? Art, yeah. We actually, so that park cost us about a million dollars. We brought it in under budget, so we have a small surplus remaining that we'd like to allocate to fund a handful of local artists to install uh, public art installations. I'm probably 
You're one of the deciders on that. Uh, we will form an evaluation committee, so it'll be uh, that's kind of fun. You know, our our colleagues. Yeah, it's a, a immense opportunity. Over on the Jamaica Pond, mm -hmm. I've been over there for the first time. Do, are you aware of what's over there? I am. Yeah. Tell them. So there is, um, you know, an increasing sort of concentration of public art, and I love Jamaica Pond. I used to go there as a kid. We grew up uh, in the area. It's still awesome too. It's still great. Um, there is really, you know. There's boating access, which is one thing we don't have in Chelsea that we're clamoring for, you know, recreational boating yeah. access. Um, and there's just such a wonderful focus on creativity. So while we're there, there's an additional thing. There's an art installation mm. where there are, I think, five spots where fog is emitted. Have you been there? Have you oh, seen yeah. it? Oh, yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. And it, you don't really hear anything. You'll be walking along and maybe it's evening. And you all of a sudden see this fog, this mysterious like ghost fog, like a movie, yeah, coming over the water, like shooting way out. So I guess there's some sort of like iron compounds in it that causes it to freeze and structurally just stay still. I don't. It doesn't tend to rise. It's right. true. It keeps it low, and uh, it's and there are about five spots, and one of them is kind of in the woods, and you see this cool creamy kind of fog that stays low filtering through the trees it's cool it's uncanny yeah so how do you how does a guy um recruit local installation artists sure so uh you know we have a local cultural council so a lot of communities do similarly uh the massachusetts cultural council uh funds local cultural councils with uh appropriations of funding each year so they typically put out calls for art installations, uh, either select projects that they have in mind or they let artists propose their own projects and locations. So we'd work with them. We have a couple other uh, live-work studios in the city with working artists. We also partner with some of them to sort of circulate these opportunities. But we release a call for proposals and um, judge them based upon merit, judge them based upon sort of local sensibilities and uh, sort of the appropriateness with the uh, surrounding environment. So part of your job as assistant planner is to get federal money. Mm. And how are you doing at that? And how does one go about doing that? Um, I, we are very lucky. Um, we are still able to bring in federal money for transportation and infrastructure uh, programs. But each uh, federal agency is structured somewhat differently when it comes to um, seeking and obtaining the funding. But... For example, we were recently um, awarded about $10 million for the reconstruction of Broadway in Chelsea from City Hall over to the Revere City Line. And that's a process that entails uh, you know, drafting an application, crafting sort of an outreach strategy. Uh, you approach a regional transportation committee that uh, is tasked with distributing the funds. Uh, you lobby for your case. You present the project somewhat persuasively. Um, you demonstrate the need. You demonstrate the benefits for safety, the environment, quality of life, all of that. And um, eventually, if uh, the project's compelling enough, they program funding for it. So we were able to obtain that. We also were recently uh, lucky enough to obtain about $3 million in federal funding to uh, completely reconstruct Beecham Street. Nice. I was wondering if perhaps in the current political climate, Massachusetts was at a, you know, if it was tougher for Massachusetts to get federal funds, mm -hmm. but I guess not. I, I, it's always difficult to get federal funds for a municipality. We always have to make sure that we're advocating strongly. We always have to make sure that our constituencies are fully represented and heard um, in these uh, venues of sort of public discourse. It's always challenging. Right now, obviously, the political climate makes it 
far more challenging than it was before. But we are lucky that the uh, state agencies and the governor's office has been very generous to the city of Chelsea. We work very closely with them and are represented fairly well um, at the state house. And on- lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me. What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Great. Can help. Tell us about you and how you became who you are, urban planner. It's pretty interesting. The floor is yours. Sure. Thank you. So um, my background, obviously, urban planning and design. Um, I hold a master's degree. Even from, before that, before we get the master's. Yeah. How'd you happen to take those courses? How'd I happen to take those courses? So I have a bachelor's degree in American history, and I focused a lot on industrialization um, throughout that course of study. Uh, my father, coincidentally, is an architect, works uh, in the civil infrastructure uh, realm. So growing up, there were always books lying around. There were models lying around. Uh-huh. This was a lot of... Uh, stuff before uh, computer-aided design really took over in the industry and everything was done manually still. So I was sort of immersed in all these materials, immersed in architecture, and uh, that coupled with my undergraduate studies sort of guided me to it. Um, Before you go on, your father was also in the rock scene? Yes, yes. Uh, (laughs) um, He was uh, big into garage punk and uh, all of that back in the 70s, uh, worked with uh, the people at The Rat, they had a record label. Actually, a lot of people don't know that. Um, in addition to the venue, they had a small record label. They released albums. From they put out a compilation, at least one. Compilation. They put out a Nervous Eaters record. Um, so he actually did all the album design for a lot of those. And uh, Did he do, do you think, that compilation? He did that. It's, uh, it's black, right? Yeah. With red. Yeah, with the red. Yeah, he did that. Yeah. Cool. Joseph Bernardino. You notice I just happened to be a, wearing a rat hat. I see that. Yeah, the, excellent. The, the rat. Excellent. I did not know this. It's just a coincidence. So that's kind of cool. You were also in the music scene. I just think it's interesting to see how a guy like you evolves. Yeah. So you I, were into the hardcore scene punk because that was hardcore. kind of a natural extension of what your father was into, which was the garage. Sort of. I don't. Scene. I don't know. You know, when I was first delving into hardcore, it was met with a lot of resistance at home. Right. It's is that why you delved chaotic. into it? Um, no, I delved into for a number of reasons. You know, one of them uh, centers around sort of animal rights. I'm. Uh, you know, I'm a vegan and I'm yep. big into sort of... And the straight edge factor? The straight edge factor was very attractive at a young age when, um, you it's, know, a lot of my peers were doing the opposite. And straight edge is no smoking, no drinking, but I didn't know it went as far as vegetarian. Uh, depends on the interpretation. Yeah. Some interpret you, it like that, some don't. You did? I, I did. Yes, okay. I did. I went the entire way. Um, yeah, and there was also this uh, do-it-yourself movement in punk rock, which was a reliance on you know yourself for creating art, not relying on corporate interests, not relying on record labels, not relying right. on art representatives, but really funding everything yourself, doing it yourself, and engaging the community. And a lot of that influences still to this day the yeah. work that I do professionally. And, and then you say community, and that brings us back to you as a, a planner. So you went to do your master's in, in uh, urban planning, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, at uh, UMass Amherst. Okay. How'd you get the gig at Chelsea? How did I get the gig at Chelsea? I saw a job posting and I applied. Where did you see it? I saw it on the, uh, what is it, indeed.com. Really, online? No lie, yeah, online. And Randomly. 
the boss over there, as I understand it, was looking for some fresh people and fresh faces, fresh ways of looking at things, and you were the beneficiary of that. Yeah, so we have a new, um, I came in at the tail end of the old administration, and we have a new city manager who started about two years ago. Um, he started about uh, four months after I came on board, and uh, we had a lot of new staff come on board at that time, and we were beginning to strategically realign what we were thinking about in the planning sphere, what we were thinking about in the development sphere. The real estate market was changing. A lot of the conditions on the ground were changing. So it was a really exciting time, but also a time that you know really demanded a serious and sound approach to this stuff. Okay, and we'll continue with that, but we have Dan in Milford with us. Hi, Dan. Say hello to Alexander Train. Hi, Alexander and Bradley J. How are you guys doing hey, tonight? Great. 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 Uh, yeah, just call in. Um, uh, uh, also uh, from New Hampshire, actually, uh, uh, I've spoken to you a couple times, uh, uh, Bradley J. About uh, I'm, I'm uh, have a the Honda Civic, and I've uh, participated in your discussions on cars. And okay. Anyway, okay. I'm, I'm I'm from from Durham, uh, New Hampshire. Right and, on. Uh, That's where I went to so school. Not, not exactly. Yeah, I went to went to UNH as well. So okay. Um, anyway, but. Uh, so yeah, I'd come down to the city a lot, and uh, you know, go over the Tobin Bridge, and just uh, you mentioned uh, Tappan Zee is one of the other kind of similar types of bridges, and and just curious in terms of with bridges now, there's a lot of discussion in terms of the age. Uh, so what is the expected? What was the? And I hope you didn't already talk about this, but what was the anticipated capacity when it was first built? Uh, what is it? Uh, I get it. We the, get it. Yeah. So, what are the future yeah. uh, plans for it? That's a good question. Why don't I should have asked that myself, Dan? All yeah. right. Great question. Thank you, Dan. So, um, in, ter in terms of capacity, so right now the bridge handles about sixty-two thousand uh, vehicle trips a day. That's a substantial amount of vehicle trips. I I wouldn't say that it's met its capacity yet, but it's it's close. Um, the lifespan is perceived to be about forty to fifty years before needing another significant round of rehabilitation. Uh, what the future holds, they'll be unveiling um, like a no set of new rehabilitation project of the Chelsea Viaduct. They're also uh, reconstructing the uh, upper and lower decks of the Tobin Bridge currently, as well as uh, reconstructing uh, the Beacon Street off-ramp and the Everett Ave on-ramp. So they're doing a lot right now, actually, to sort of solidify that future. So in 50 years, the wow. bridge will be 115 years old, right? Mm. That's pretty old. Yeah, 19... 100 years old. It is. But it I is. suppose you have... Brooklyn Bridge and Manhattan Bridge. Those are old bridges, too. Quite archaic, yeah. All right, Dan, anything else? Well, no, that was it. Just uh, curious about the the, 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 the the structure of it. That's cool. all. So, I'm glad you checked in. I'm, Thanks. I'm really glad you checked in. Next time you call, we'll talk about Durham, because I, I, I'm curious as where you live and everything. So thanks. Uh, absolutely. L love to do that. Maybe you can... Uh, have a discussion about uh, colleges or universities or that kind of thing at some point. So hometowns. Okay. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. So now back to you. You got this job. What were the uh, initial challenges right away? Were you overwhelmed? Your, your early days as the assistant city planner. Early days. So obviously, so I came on board in 2015. Um, that was sort of as we were approaching the zenith of this real estate cycle. Uh, so there was a lot of development pressures and one of the biggest uh, challenges that we grapple with as urban planners is 
uh, the reality of development. So there are positives and negatives that uh, come from development and real estate activity. So how do you manage that responsibly? How do you manage that in a way that doesn't harm your residents, but actually has direct and ancillary benefits for them? Um, so really wrapping our heads around that was, was one of the initial challenges. Who lives there? Who did live there? Who is expected to live there? Sure. So right now, uh, you know, we're about uh, almost uh, 66% uh, Latino. We are uh, have a population that's approximately 40% foreign-born. So uh, predominantly, uh, there are a significant number of immigrants from Central America currently residing in Chelsea. Uh, historically, it's always been an immigrant community, and we're a proud gateway community um, in that regard, um, dating back to the uh, late sort of 1900s, early 20th century. There was a uh, you know large influx of uh, Russians. There was a large influx of Eastern Europeans. Large influx of uh, the Jewish population. Um, and before that, it was sort of the uh, sort of amalgamation of immigrants that you see elsewhere in Boston: the Polish, uh, the Irish, the Italians. Um, and there was just these successive waves of immigrants over and over. Now we see a lot of, uh, in addition to uh, folks from Central America, um, we see immigrants coming from Eastern Europe. Um, specifically sort of the former Yugoslav Republic area, as well as uh, folks from sort of the Eastern African uh, countries that have undergone a lot of civil war and strife lately. So the immigrant population, it doesn't seem like something you suffer, but it's something you embrace. We embrace it. We are, you know, it. we've never been anything but That's that. who you are. So we are. Okay. Now, what about the notion of sanctuary city? I'm sure you have to grapple with that. It comes up. Yes. You know, funding is tied to, well, yep. it's probably not yet tied to it, but... There are rumblings on and off. First, there are different definitions of sanctuary city, most common being that you don't really work with ICE mm. on low-level mm -hmm. uh, immigrant problems. Right. Oh, can you be more specific on the so, definition of sanctuary city for Chelsea? The definition of sanctuary city for Chelsea. So we are a proud sanctuary city. So uh, similarly, you know, if there, we aren't in the business of detaining people for ICE. So um, similarly, most sanctuary cities aren't either, right? Um, our resources, I believe, and our city manager, I know, uh, supports and our police chief supports are, are better utilized at keeping the community safe. And one of the best methods of keeping the community safe is ensuring that everyone feels comfortable engaging government and engaging the police. That's an increasing challenge with immigrant communities that originate from countries that are sort of tarnished with civil war and corruption. And establishing that rapport, those bonds, those relationships to the point where they entrust us um, is one of the paramount challenges we face. Um, we, as a city, I believe, you know, truly feel that one of the best avenues of doing that is by establishing a sanctuary city policy where we're not acting as the federal government. We're not acting as sort of the federal immigration arm and enforcing uh, what they're tasked with enforcing. Now, I notice 40% of foreign-born English is really not going to be something that everyone Correct. is good Correct. at. Correct, predominantly. I see that you have community schools English classes funded by community development block grant. Yes. 
Tell me about that. So Community Development Block Grant is a federal funding program um, administered by the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Um, depending on your population, poverty rate, and other statistical uh, indicators in need, um, you either qualify as an entitlement community and you get money directly from the feds, or you qualify as a mini entitlement community, which Chelsea is. The money's relayed to the state and then distributed to the localities from there. So we utilize that funding for a number of uses, affordable housing, infrastructure, public social services and economic development. Um, part of the social service portfolio that we oversee includes citizenship and immigration classes to train people for the naturalization exam. Another key component is the um, English as a Second Language program, which we run through the Chelsea Community Schools after hours open to all residents. So everyone's better off if everyone, ha if there's a common language and English would be it. it. They're all better off if they speak English. Uh, well, in Chelsea, everyone speaks Spanish and... So that's a common language. You that's don't really the common need, language. You don't need to speak English. Uh, you don't need to as much as you need to elsewhere now. So you could actually have Spanish classes that are free for people who don't and we, speak and, Spanish. And we, and we do. That's part of what we fund as part of this. So anybody program. in Chelsea, if they want to be part of the common language, they study not English, but Spanish. Spanish. Yep. So if there were to be a language. Yeah. A town language. Town language it would, would be, be Spanish. Spanish. Do you oh, yeah. know Spanish? Uh, I know rudimentary Spanish. You know, admittedly, I took it for eight years in eight years in, in school. I retained very little of it. Oh, from uh, one to eight, middle school and high school, and a little bit of elementary. But you don't retain that much stuff at that age. No, you well, know, you despise school. True. All right, now we have uh, Louise in Malden. Hi, Louise. Hey, Bradley. Hi, Alexander. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Hey, yeah, in, in terms of um, development and planning, uh, what came to mind for me is uh, climate change and knowing that that area is particularly vulnerable to flooding. And um, I've also heard that the, there are warehouses there that house a lot of the food supply it gets, that gets shipped out to the region. Yeah. So I'd love to hear you address what happening on that front so given, you do yeah you have to make any preparations for climate change like oh of course venice is st mark square is underwater like a three a quarter of the year right and yeah. so they have planks built up so you can walk around do you have to make plans for oh yeah rising water levels rising water levels storm surges so we uh last year uh, completed a uh, critical infrastructure vulnerability study that looked at the susceptibility of infrastructure to flooding to storm surges to uh, anything ranging from uh, deficient stormwater infrastructure to poorly draining soils. Um, one of the key uh, susceptible areas is the New England Produce Center, as this caller just mentioned. So uh, we're leading a task force comprised of regional partners right now and uh, are pursuing um, design and engineering of an elevated flood berm directly in front of the New England Produce Center along the banks of the Island and River. We recently secured about 325000 to design it from the State Office of Coastal Zone Management. We'll be pursuing additional state and federal funding to construct it, doing that in conjunction with the city of Everett. So that cluster back there, um, New England Produce Center, Anchor is a sort of regional cluster of produce distribution companies. All the stuff we see at the supermarkets, restaurants, all goes through there on their way to retailers. Um, to disrupt that would be catastrophic. It would result in sort of scarcity of fresh produce. It would result in you know, escalating prices. Um, it'll result in 
uh, significant jo loss of jobs. So our estimates indicate that almost four to 5,000 people are employed directly there, and there's another indirect 11,000 jobs that that cluster supports. Um, you know, we're talking in the range of about $2 billion a year in annual sales, um, and the city's actually recently completed an economic model uh, extrapolating out what would happen if it were to flood out, what would happen if it were to be disrupted, um, and taking all that data and distilling it in a way that makes it uh, a persuasive project for state and federal entities to uh, to fund and begin financing some of the infrastructure that's needed. Cool question and also a cool answer. Louise, thank you very much. I want to let you know that I accidentally went to Malden today. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I thought I heard the guy say, Assembly, but I think he said Wellington, and I just stayed on the train, I got, and next thing I knew, I'm in Malden. All right. Thanks well, a lot. I missed you, but uh, all right, thanks. Talk to you soon. <laughs> So we don't have much time. I need, I need to ask questions quickly, and yeah. I guess we concise up the answers a little bit. Okay. There's a, a lot of cities do bikes, public bikes. Yes. Dockless bikes. Yes. I myself, uh, there's so many bikes now, I'm a pedestrian. Mm -hmm. I'm getting encroached upon, kind of. Mm. I mean, you have to, as a city planner, you kind of have to watch out for everybody. You, you do. have to watch out for motorists. You have to watch out for bicyclists. But now I start to feel like the pedestrian is kind of getting squeezed out mm. where, where are you on that does, does that stuff you think about yeah we're actually undertaking a citywide pedestrian and bike plan right now yeah. that looks at bike infrastructure but also looks at pedestrian infrastructure is it ada compliant um is it sufficient and safe can it actually take people to where they want to go yeah to increase the walkability of the city so chelsea's small 1.8 square miles extremely dense predominantly you know people walk um they take public transit but they yeah. also walk well, I hope when you're planning that, I know bikes are a thing, and bikes earn money for a community, right? With those, do those bikes? No. Do, like, they don't? No. Good. I'm kind of glad. It's a private company. Uh, that earns money for them. That earns money for them. So you don't really gain anything out of it? Uh, we, you know, our residents gain by having low-cost access to a mobility option. Okay. We don't gain financially from it, now. All right, because I almost got taken out today by a bike, but it happens all the time. Mm. And on a, a, on the, uh, the Muddy River Walkway, it was... Yeah. It was a, a bike highway, and it was a bummer to walk on. It can be treacherous, yeah. Yeah, so next up, interesting thing you told me during a break, I wanted everybody to know, at all your meetings, being, being a bilingual city, all your meetings you have are bilingual, and, and there are headsets for everyone at every meeting. Correct. Yes, we have uh, interpretation services at every meeting, um, Spanish interpretation, headsets for all attendees, uh, all of the documentation, the presentations, all of that, English and Spanish. Um, we also hold smaller meetings where we don't do the headsets, but we actually do sort of a short English presentation followed by a short Spanish presentation, vice versa. All depends on the setting, but always bilingual. Okay. And Silverline Gateway Project. Yes. Tell me about it. Interesting project. So they recently complete, so $73 million extension of the Silver Line from South Boston waterfront out to Chelsea. I don't know if you remember decades ago when they envisioned the urban ring, but this was sort of the first segment of it that would can create this concentric connection between all the transit lines. It, they finished phase one last year. It has four stops in Chelsea, stop at the airport. Um, through Chelsea, it's on a dedicated right-of-way, so it doesn't interfere with traffic. Right. Nothing like encroaches on it. That's the thing. Yeah. It's like a, a railroad for buses. Exactly. Until it hits the tunnel, right? So 
enters mixed traffic of the tunnel. That's a congestion point. Um, but they're undertaking phase two, which is the relocation of the uh, current commuter rail station over to where the uh, Mystic Mall and the Chelsea Market Basket is. And then they are also, uh, we're putting out a phase three. There's a greenway that runs parallel to this, and it's beautiful. And it's one of the first sort of shared-use paths exclusively for pedestrians and bicyclists in Chelsea. So we're conducting some enhancements of that, increased sort of public congregation areas, signage, all the like. You know what? If anybody wants to check out what's going on in Chelsea, and I think you could because it's really a lot going on. Housing rehabilitation program, well, I'm not going to go through all of it, but it's it's vibrant, and you can tell it's vibrant just by looking at the website. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. It's been a Alexander pleasure. Train, Assistant Director, Planning and Development, City of Chelsea. Up and coming. Don't up and come too fast. <laughs> don't, don't want you to lose that your charm. Also, we don't have the time to talk about this. You know what I want? I want my communities to not have chain stores. And you're a type of community that could ban chain stores and and keep the small business alive. We have a lot it's of It's so boring businesses. to walk by a bunch of chain stores. Walk through downtown Chelsea. Right All on. independently owned businesses, small Very businesses, good. immigrant owned. Thank you so much. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.